We're in a study of the life of Jesus, and we're looking at choices that Jesus made. And each one of these choices has something to do with us. So we've already learned how Jesus chose to love. We're loved. You're a beloved child of God. That's awesome news. But not only you, everybody else that you come in contact with is a beloved child of God. We also hear how he came to heal. He chose to heal. That's physical healing. That's spiritual healing. That's all kinds of ways in which God works in our, in our lives. We also looked at how Jesus chose to forgive. That was a choice. Have you ever had a hard time forgiving someone? Ever had a hard time forgiving someone? Yes or no? Yes. going to be hard. What was hard for God? Jesus gave his ultimate sacrifice. Jesus died on the cross to provide our forgiveness. We learned and continue to reflect on how he chose to reconcile us with God and to teach us how to reconcile with each other. And this morning we're going to talk about shame. Now shame is a word we don't like to talk about because we shouldn't have shame. Jesus takes away our shame. One of the worship songs talks about how he takes away our shame. The scripture wants us to know that there's nothing when we have been reconciled to God and we've been forgiven that should continue to be held in our lives that causes us shame, but we allow it to happen. We do it to ourselves by holding on to things. And so the scripture this morning that we're going to look at is one of the people in the Bible who was dealing with shame and how Jesus dealt with it in his life. But first, I'd like to tell you about a sweepstakes that you can enter. If you would like to have work done on your home, and you can't afford it, or maybe you haven't gotten around to it, Home and Garden magazine runs something that calls Home Makeover Sweepstakes. If you go online, you can enter. And if you enter and you win, you can have something, maybe something that you feel bad about in your home. You're like, oh, I always wish I could get this done. And now they'll come and they'll make sure that it all gets taken care of and it doesn't cost you anything. That's good news, isn't it? Certainly, if you needed something to be done, it would be good news. But I got better news for you. We all have a spiritual home, our relationship with God our personal house, our, our own individual self of who we are. And that's where God wants to do the ultimate home makeover. And guess what? You've already won the sweepstakes. You don't have to enter in anything because Jesus has already done that work. Now, we think, wow, it would be great to have this physical thing done as if that's so important. But what really matters in our life is our spiritual life and how we get through every day and how we face God, and how we face one another. And that's where the ultimate work that God wants to do and is doing is taking place. So this morning, we're going to talk about and learn about a person who genuinely needed a spiritual home makeover. His name is Zacchaeus, and for any of you who grew up in Sunday school, when I asked my wife what she thinks of when she thinks of Zacchaeus, she went right back to the little Sunday school song that we all learned as children, which I'm not going to sing for you today, because I would lose everybody in worship if I did, but it's a cute little song that we teach the children. But what we need to know is there was a guy in the first century, and his name was Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a man who seemed to do very well in his life, and he, we're going to talk about this, he had earthly wealth, but he was also a tax collector. Now, I have an invitation for you. How many of you, first of all, like to pay taxes? 
Oh, shucks. I was hoping you were all going to raise your hand, and I was going to say, well, then we can have you pay somebody else's taxes. Exactly. We don't like to pay taxes. Nobody's ever liked to pay taxes. Go, read the, go listen to the old Beatles song, The Tax Man, and you'll see what the Beatles thought about ta paying taxes when they were a rock group back in the 60s. The point is, nobody likes to pay taxes. But here's what is interesting about when we pay taxes. We all live in Massachusetts, so we pay taxes to the state of Massachusetts. We pay some local taxes. We pay taxes to the government, and then we complain about it because we don't like the way the money's spent. So we complain, they're taking too much money, we don't like where it's going. But here's what happened in the first century. They didn't have it as well off as you and I have. Because at least we get to pay to our government that is our government. And whether or not you agree with where your tax money is going, and I'm sure no matter who you are, you could always say, if I could choose, I would choose to make it go differently. But in our life, at least it goes to provide for things that we are somehow connected with because it's our government. That's not what it was like in Jesus' day. You have the nation of Israel that wants nothing more than to get the Romans out of there because Rome has come in as an occupying country and is occupying their nation. And now, guess what they want? They want taxes. So they tax the Jewish people who are living in Jerusalem, and they need to make their tax payments. And even little towns like Jericho that we read about this morning, they need to have a representative in that community to get the taxes, not to fix the roads and the bridges in their town, but to send them to Rome. Now, if you think you don't like to pay taxes, imagine paying those taxes. Your taxes all went up, and you all get to pay your money to Iraq, Iran. You put the nation in there. Norway. They were like, wait a second, I don't want to do that. We fought a revolution in our country way back 1776. Taxation without representation. We're Americans. We understand that would not be something we'd want to be part of, but that's what took place in the first century. Now, this is where things got really interesting. How did they get the taxes? They found a local Jewish person who is a person who's a resident of Israel to extract the taxes for Rome. And that's who Zacchaeus is. And he's wealthy. He's made a lot of money on this. You can imagine how popular he was when he went to the local market basket. Wow, there's our good friend Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, you got enough money for Rome? Here, let me give you a little bit more money. I think not. He was not a person that others liked. And imagine the internal turmoil that was going on in this guy's life. You know? I'm doing something I really wish I didn't have to do. But on the other hand, if I didn't do it, somebody else would do it, so I guess I might as well do it. But on the other hand, I am taking money for a foreign government. And maybe if nobody would take money for a foreign government, we could finally get the Romans out of here. But on the other hand, I live a pretty good life. I got a really nice house, and, and my bank account's looking really good. But on the other hand, I don't really even like to show myself in public because as much money as I have, people still don't want to be around me because I represent something that they all hate. Man, I don't like my life. You see, just having a lot of wealth and physically having a lot of things didn't make the difference for Zacchaeus. And that's why if you look at Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, 
we come to the story of Zacchaeus and we discover that material wealth is not spiritual wealth. Far too often, we make the mistake and we put them together. And here we have a man who's in inner turmoil and knows that there's something wrong and he doesn't like the choices he's made and he wishes he could make different choices, but he's feeling trapped in it. But on the other hand, he's got a lot of money. And so on the outside, if you'd look at him, you'd say, nobody's feeling sorry for Zacchaeus over there. He's the wealthiest person in town. Listen to what we read about him in our text in verse 2. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Far too often we call money, God's blessing me. We all do that. I got a blessing this week. God did something material in my life. Now, don't get me wrong. Material things can be God's blessing. But here the opposite. Just because someone has financial security doesn't mean they have God's blessing. All money is not God's blessing. And God's blessing is certainly not always money. Because here we come across a person who you would look at as far as his bank account, as far as the quality of his physical house, and you'd say everything is okay. And so our text tells us that Zacchaeus was rich. Now, I don't need to unpack the Greek word for rich, because you know what rich means? It means rich. It means if he was in your town, you'd made, made note of this guy. He had the biggest house, nicest clothes, finest jewelry. I mean, if he had kids, they went to the best schools. But also, the text tells us he was a tax collector, which also meant he compromised. He sort of believed something on the one hand, but on the other hand, he was living a different way, but then he was in turmoil, but he couldn't get out of it, and he didn't know what to do, and that's why wealth is a funny thing. It doesn't fix us. Far too often, we think, if I could just get that next job, if I could just get that next promotion, if I could just get the bigger house, if I could just get so much money in, our, in my bank account, if this would work a little bit out about better, we think somehow then we would be okay. And yet the truth is, sometimes, even though maybe we have something on the outside, or we've acquired something, we still know that there's something wrong. I don't remember my first sin. Probably none of us do. But I do remember the first time I was aware of sin. I remember the first time that I felt kind of the guilt and shame of doing something really wrong. And I was a first grader. Now, please understand, if you talked to my family or if my parents were still alive and you said, did Stan sin before he was in first grade? Oh, absolutely. I'm sure there are a lot of stories they could tell you. But I actually remember the first time it really hit me that I did something I shouldn't do. You see, when I went to first grade, the teacher was really clear with us. We were supposed to have crayons, Crayola crayons, box of eight. Now, in retrospect, I probably know why she did that. She wanted the box of eight because she was teaching us primary colors. So, of course, when it went time to go and purchase the crayons, I was with my parents, and it's also interesting, I didn't go to school at the beginning of the year. I had surgery that year, so I started the school year into the year a ways, and so I already knew that everybody else, because I had friends in, in school, I knew everybody else had 
bought boxes of eight crayons, and I went to the store with my parents, and I had been told that, but I don't know if they had, because I said to them, and I still remember when we're standing there looking at the crayons, saying, instead of getting that box of eight, I think I could get that box of 64 over there. I probably justified it in my mind. Smart little first grader that I was. Well, there are eight crayons in there. Why do I want this little box when I can have that big box? So my parents, being nice parents, probably not thinking they were doing anything wrong, bought me my box of 64 crayons, and little Stanley went off to first grade. And I went in, and I sat down, and I put my box of 64 crayons on my desk, and I still remember the kid who sat behind me, and he leaned forward and said, you're not supposed to have those. We're only supposed to have eight crayons. Everybody else in the class only has eight crayons. And I looked around, and all of a sudden, I realized I was the only one who had more than everyone else. Everybody had eight crayons, and I had 64. I went from feeling like I had more to feeling embarrassed and ashamed because I didn't want people talking about me. I didn't want people to know what I had done. So I took my 64 crayons, and I hid them in my desk. Isn't that what sin is? Just having more doesn't fix us. Having 64 crayons when everybody else on the block only has eight doesn't mean that our life is better. But far too often, we just look at things materially and we forget about the fact that it's spiritual poverty that God wants to work into our lives, whether we're children or whether we're adults. And that's why we need self-inventory. And self-inventory is not optional for us as Christians. And it's unfortunate that we don't talk enough about self-inventory in the church. I was in a Bible study this last Friday, and one of the men who's in the Bible study, who's also in another spiritual group, he said, in that group, we always talk about self-inventory, but we don't deal with it enough in the church. Why don't we talk more about self-inventory? Because the truth is, we need to get ourselves right before God and be honest before Jesus about the things that are wrong in our life, far away from everyone else. We don't need to walk in front of the congregation and spill our guts in front of everybody so everyone in the church is going, TMI, TMI, like I didn't want to hear this. But rather have that conversation with Jesus where we can begin looking at the things that need to change in our life and the problems that we have and the sins that need to be overcome and the character defects and character flaws that God needs to heal. That's why we read about Zacchaeus in verses 3 and 4 when we're told he was small in stature. That means he was not six foot one. He certainly couldn't have made it on the Boston Celtics. He was one of the shorter guys in town. Verse 4, so he ran up ahead, and he climbed into a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus, for Jesus was about to pass that way. So at this point, it's clear that Zacchaeus knew, because he'd done some kind of self-inventory, he knew there was something wrong with him. He knew that just having a bigger chariot than anybody else in town or having the only chariot in town didn't make him okay because he realized that he had this shame, the stuff that he couldn't deal with, these areas of in his life that he needed to have fixed. He's just like us when we're honest. When we're honest with ourselves and we do a self-inventory, we realize... Yeah, there's stuff I don't want somebody else to know about. There's attitudes I have and thoughts I have and behaviors that I have that I need to take them to Jesus. 
Bible tells us he was short, so he climbed a tree. He wanted to see something, but it's also clear he didn't want to be seen. Because remember, he could have done something else. He could have run to the front of the crowd, pushed him way forward, and stood in front to see Jesus come by. But instead, he's sitting up on the top of the tree, reflecting on himself, thinking, man, can this guy help me because nobody else has been able to. Reminds me of the first story of the Bible, Adam and Eve. God says to this couple, as they are living a life of innocence and everything is going well, and God says, you can only have eight crayons. And Adam and Eve go, what do you mean we can only have eight crayons? And God says, no, you can live a perfectly happy life on eight crayons and learning the primary colors. And so when God is not around, and they, he's always around, but they convince themselves he can't see what's going on, Eve goes and has herself a little conversation with a snake who says, did God really say you could only have eight crayons? Remember, there are eight crayons in a box of 64. So Eve convinces herself to buy the bigger box. And her husband thinks it's a good idea. Only the Bible didn't talk about crayons, did it? It talked about a fruit. And it said, God said you can do anything, but leave that alone. Just don't touch that. Don't eat that. And so Eve has a conversation. And she and Adam decide, you know what? We'll do it our way. We're human beings. That's what we do. We human beings take our will back and think that we know better. And now Adam and Eve do the thing they shouldn't do, just like a first grader does in taking too many crayons, or just like we all do with our life all the time, every single day. As my father used to say, we don't just sin in thought, word, and deed daily. We do it constantly. And then we're stuck with ourselves. And we're Adam and Eve hiding in the garden going, how did I get myself here? Or we're Zacchaeus sitting up in a tree watching this guy walk by, hoping and praying that just maybe for once we can get our lives together, fully together. Which is why there is no substitute for a spiritual inventory. Jesus, what do I need to fix in my life? I don't need to stand in front of everybody else and have the conversation. You and I just need to sit down and have an honest conversation. What needs to change? And when we have that conversation and we do that spiritual inventory, we discover sometimes maybe we need to hire a coach. Maybe we need to hire a counselor. Maybe we need to do something medically, do something physically. Maybe we need to have a change in our financial habits. But it needs to be that conversation that's honest about ourselves before Jesus. This is different than salvation. You see, salvation is when we are forgiven before God, and we give our lives to Christ, and we accept the grace that Jesus offers to us because we've been forgiven on the cross, but then we say, hey, I still got a mess in my life that God needs to clean and needs to work on. Which is why I love the word obedience. It actually comes from the Latin word obedere, which means to listen or to pay attention to. In other words, our obedience to Jesus is our listening to Jesus and paying attention to his perspective on my life. To see what he's telling me needs to change. I was talking to my nephew Todd. Now, 
My son, Todd, is named after my nephew, Todd. They're both Todd Allen Cushing. And I like to joke and say my parents had bookends as far as their grandchildren. The first child was Todd Allen Cushing, and the last child was Todd Allen Cushing. My nephew, Todd, I'm obviously pretty close to because not only do I talk to him almost every single day, we named our youngest son after him. Well, in the conversation he and I had yesterday, he told me about a clockmaker. He said there was an antique clockmaker who heard about a guy who bought an antique clock, a beautiful old clock. And this guy went to this clockmaker, because he also fixed clocks, and he asked him to come in and completely refurbish his clock. And he said, so the guy who's bought this old antique clock, it was all beat up, and he had it just totally gone over and gorgeous, and he gets his clock back home, and the, antique, the clockmaker leaves it for him and, and leaves. And he said, a couple days later, the guy calls him up on the phone and goes, there's something wrong with the clock. And the clockmaker goes, what do you mean? He said, it's a beautiful antique clock, and I have it in my living room, but it loses one second every day. And the guy goes, yeah, you're right, it loses a second every day. And the guy who had the clock fixed up, he goes, no, you don't understand. This clock loses a second every day. I have an atomic clock that gives me exact perfect time. And it gives it right down to the second, and I watch it, and every 24 hours, the clock loses one second. And the clockmaker says, yes, you're right. Those clocks lose a second every day. The third time the guy goes, no, you don't understand. My clock loses a second every day. And the clockmaker who's worked on the clock goes, yes, I understand. Those clocks lose one second every day. You have to fix the clock. We're clocks. We're not perfect. We're antique clocks. You may want to think your life is perfect, I may want to think that I can get it all 100% right. Guess what? We can't. We are not perfect human beings, and no one is other than Jesus. And the clockmaker wants you and me to understand every single day, we lose a second every day, and that's why self-inventory and correction is absolutely essential. We do far too much damage in our lives when we expect perfection. And we think that somehow that I've given my life to Jesus, therefore all my problems have gone away. Which is why over the centuries, it's really fascinating what Christian leaders have done to help us take self-inventory. Jonathan Edwards, just down the road here in New England, came up with 76 questions for people to ask themselves. John Wesley, he said 76 questions is too many. Let's make it 22 questions. The Franciscans, they said, let's get it down to five questions. But you see, the point is still the same. We need to be able to ask ourselves those questions before Jesus every day. Before we end our day, have I harmed someone? Have my motives been pure? I know that the rest of the world is completely messed up, and I'm not expecting anybody else to get it 100% right, but have I been honest in my dealings with others? Have I forgiven the people that I should forgive? Have I, have I really loved unconditionally as Jesus has taught me to love, or has I really had selfish motivations? 
Have I been conflicted like Zacchaeus, making compromises in my life and wondering why I'm in turmoil? The point of the questions and the point of the self-inventory and the point of the inventory for Zacchaeus is not to make us feel shameful. It's to get rid of the shame. It's to realize that God has forgiven us and graciously lavished blessing upon us. And now as we confess this stuff before God, God works on it and starts to get rid of it. Amen? That is an amazing thing about the God that we serve. Jesus didn't just forgive you. He cleanses you. He gives you a new chance. He teaches you how to forgive. He teaches me how to get a better life. And it is a constant process when we understand that we are nothing more than anti-clocks. And we're little first graders hiding our 64 crayons and wondering why we feel better. And now when we start taking that self-inventory, we discover that Jesus offers us a spiritual home makeover. That's what he wants to do in our life. Remember, this is not a salvation message. If you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to speak to me after worship and we'll have a prayer. Because God wants to forgive you completely, to take away all the stuff that we hold on to and think that we have to do for ourselves. But having been forgiven by God, we still have all that stuff that needs to be cleaned up in our lives. Which is why I love what we read in verse 5. Jesus says to Zacchaeus what he says to each of us. Zacchaeus, hurry down. For I must stay at your house today. Hear what Jesus is saying? Hurry down. Because I need to stay in your life today. I need to move into your spiritual home. I need you to invite me in so we can start dealing with the stuff that needs to be dealt with. Zacchaeus, interestingly, started to change immediately. He didn't become perfect, but he started to change. Because as soon as we take that inventory and we say, okay, God, I'm willing to start working on this. I have a problem with, you put it in there. I have a problem with spending I spend too much money, I buy things I shouldn't buy, I feel bad about it, and I start hiding them from people because I don't want other people to know what I'm doing. So as soon as we can be honest about that, it starts to change. It doesn't become perfect, but it starts to change because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's what he does. Right away, starts working. So we read about Zacchaeus. We read that he received Jesus joyfully. And then he said... Half my goods, I'll give it to the poor. In fact, if I've defrauded anybody of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. This, folks, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Once we can start realizing that Jesus wants to do a spiritual home makeover in our lives, we discover that we have a little bit of joy because the stuff that we have been holding on to, sitting in the top of that sycamore tree, just hoping that someone will help us all the while hiding out, all of a sudden we find joy. We're like, wow, God cares about my life, and things really can get better, and it doesn't matter that I failed 27,469 times doing this. This time we're doing it different because I'm doing it with Jesus. And as we start realizing that, we have joy, just like Zacchaeus. And then it says that Zacchaeus was changed, we get changed. For him, he immediately realized, hey, I need to start helping other people. I need to to quit hoarding for myself and thinking, hey, I'm a tax collector and I got a lot of money. I need to build a bigger barn. Instead, I'm going to go build a barn for my neighbor. 
And the Bible says that as he starts to change, what happens is the same thing that happens to us. For him, change wasn't, wasn't optional, and it's not for us. And then he starts working on reconciliation. And he says, you know what? All this while, I've been thinking that I've been doing the right thing, but I probably haven't. And if I've taken from somebody, extracted taxes from them, that I really knew that they didn't owe, but they paid me and I took it anyhow, I'm going to pay them back four times. We've been talking about that. Racial reconciliation is why we have the Be the Bridge program. And our next program is going to be starting in June. We've had 50 people have gone through the program so far. And it's an opportunity to look at big topics like that and personal topics like our own reconciliation, our work with one another, the areas where we need to have reconciliation with our family, with our friends, with our coworkers. That's what happened in Zacchaeus' life. Once Jesus does this makeover, he starts realizing that things need to change, and he starts changing the way he deals with other people. You know what's amazing about Zacchaeus? He became a man of integrity and respect. Now you're going to say, wait a second, Pastor Stan, I read the Bible. It doesn't tell me that. It just tells me that Jesus went to his home. How do you know that he didn't turn around, kick Jesus out, and later that day say, I'm just going to go back and extract more taxes? Actually, we have the answer to that, and it's from Clement of Alexandria, who was an early church philosopher. And he wrote about Zacchaeus. And he gave us these words. He said, Zacchaeus, whom they call Matthias, was the chief tax collector. And all of a sudden we stop and we say, wait a second, Matthias, I know that name. So a little obscure verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 26. And it says that there was a guy, when Judas takes his own life, and the disciples are now down to 11 disciples, and they decide that they need to add a 12th disciple, they cast lots, and a guy named Matthias becomes the 12th disciple. Which means that not only did Zacchaeus change, the disciples were already together. There was already 12 disciples, but he became such a changed man that they had so much respect for this guy that when they had an opening on their board, they put him right in. He's the first person that they chose. That's a transformed life, folks. That's a man who went from hiding out in a sycamore tree to one of the early leaders in the Christian movement that became our church. You see, that's what God wants to do in our lives. Wherever you and I are in our relationship with God today, I invite you to ask the question, if I could enter a lottery to have a physical home makeover, what would I want changed in my home? And now that I have better than that, that Jesus has given me a spiritual home makeover, what needs to be changed in my spiritual home? Because that's where God wants to do his work in your life. And that's what I invite you. There are times when we come to an end of a sermon and we used to bring people forward and have prayer, and that's hard to do with our socially distancing. So instead, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And as we pray, I invite you to pray this prayer with me. And if there's something you'd like to talk to myself or one of the pastors about, we'd invite you to talk to us later. 
Because far too many Christians go through life hiding things and feeling like nobody else understands the stuff that we're holding on to. I know because I've been there in my life. I've had times in my life when I've had stuff that I was like, I don't want anybody else to know what's going on. And until I got right with God, I hadn't lost my salvation. I hadn't lost my faith in Jesus. But I'd lost my faith in believing that Jesus could transform my life. And if any of us are at that place, please hear the good news. No matter what needs to change, God is wanting to that work in our lives. Let us pray. And I invite you to say these words silently as I say them. Heavenly Father, help me look at my life where I'm Zacchaeus hiding in a tree come and enter into my home help me look at the things that I need to change and help me understand that you want to change them for me in Jesus name I pray